you lose track of the time. <laughs> are we recording? Outstanding. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to the scriptures as we get started. Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. Not to cut off your fellowship here, but I need to cut off your fellowship. <laughs> you can talk as long as you would like after 11 o'clock. That's a hard, fast deadline that, uh, that we're bumping up against. We want to get started right away. All right, Luke chapter 1. In preparation for our study of the Word this morning, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit. Equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We look forward to receiving the blessing of, of truth that you have for us, the feasting upon your word, this meal that you have prepared. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we might see what are the riches of our calling, the inheritance in the saints. And I thank you, Father, that we have such promises and such truth and such resources available to us day by day. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, this is January the 21st. We will have this morning's class and next week's class. Afterwards, I think we're going to have a two-week break. Uh, when I'm out of town, I, I tend to not look for um, a substitute for this class because it's difficult to find a substitute for this class with most people working and so forth. Um, turn that off so I don't get embarrassed. It's going to happen one of these days. I'm going to be standing up here and get a phone call right halfway through the Bible class. But, um, I am going to the Philippines on February the 1st and returning, that's a Sunday, and returning on Friday the 13th. So uh, be no superstitions there on my travel, certainly. I, I figure if I travel on September 11th, I can fly on Friday the 13th. That's no big deal. Uh, but it's a 5 p.m. flight out of Austin, so I will be able to t have the two morning services on that Sunday, February 1st, uh, and then fly out that afternoon. Uh, just keep these things in mind. Uh, we'll have more announcements on it in the bulletin and so forth. Randy Blair is taking the evening sessions, and uh, to my knowledge, I don't have anybody available to take the morning sessions. So if the ladies want to keep meeting for prayer and, and things like that, I would encourage that. You know, I think it's profitable, but we just won't have a, a teaching session at 10 o'clock. All right. Luke chapter 1. We are... Uh, this, we've, we've given two weeks' worth of introduction now at this point, and this is really our first study, our first uh, uh, diving into the meat, as it were. If you have the notes, then you have the kind of the rough outline uh, of the harmony of the Gospels there. We're going to essentially follow that outline. There, there may be a couple items here and there that I may disagree with, but any, any harmony is a study in and unto itself, uh, trying to correlate certain events and, uh, and determine where they fall and so forth. And in the one that I put there in your study guides, that it's the same harmony that was printed in last year's Through the Bible Study Guide. It is one of the best that i found, and I'm, I'm very pleased with it. And so we're going we're gonna to go with that just uh, for now, anyway, on a, on a working basis. And so we're going to start this morning with Luke's introduction from Luke 1, 1 through 4. We're going to then go on to uh, the pre-incarnation work of Christ in John 1, 1 through 18. 
In reality, we should start with John 1, because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Uh, that is the earliest uh, verse in the whole Bible. That beginning precedes all other beginnings you're going to find anywhere. And that uh, would be uh, uh, the ideal place to start in the Life of Christ series. However, uh, Luke's introduction of verses 1 through 4 does highlight for us the need for diligence, the need for careful study in putting things together. And so it kind of serves as a prologue, if you will, to the, uh, to the study itself. Uh, simply, if you want to outline or keep the notes in whatever way, I, I think the outline, I'm just going to basically keep it with titles that match the harmony so that you can find it pretty easily. Uh, so I'll keep the title, Luke's Introduction, Luke 1, 1 through 4, and that will match the harmony uh, outline that you have there and kind of make it easy to, uh, easy to spot. Um, I haven't really paid as much attention to the larger outline, um, for instance, that you will notice uh, Luke's introduction as well as the pre-incarnation work of Christ and the genealogy of Jesus Christ come as one, two, three. They fall under a larger heading which is called Introduction to Jesus Christ. And I haven't really made use of those titles very much, and I probably won't. Um, the next section is the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist, and it has 17 events associated with it. Uh, I, think, I, I don't have a totally uh, worked out in my mind yet how the format's going to work in this class, but I think we'll just simply take the... Uh, take the uh, outline for what we have in the like the 1 through 17 uh, and not worry about the, the the larger section title there and then we'll move into the truths about John the Baptist look at those 12 events and then we'll get to the Galilean ministry which is really the bulk of the synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and Luke focus entirely upon the Galilean ministry to a to a large extent uh John does not focus on the Galilean ministry hardly uh, and then we get to the last Judean and, and uh, Perean ministry of Jesus, and we find that there the bulk of it is is John, as opposed to the synoptics. So anyway, you will have that to refer to here and there as we proceed. Uh, for today, though, we are in that first section where we're looking at the first three points, Luke's introduction, the pre-incarnation work of Christ, and genealogies. I've covered genealogies already uh, extensively in the two lessons we had of introduction. So uh, I don't anticipate that we're going to go back to that, uh, but rather we'll then jump on to the, next, to the next area of study. As far as Luke's introduction is concerned, first of all, Luke acknowledges numerous other gospel records of the life of Christ. Let me just read through verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. All right, this uh, then serves as Luke's preamble, serves as his introduction to his gospel, and it serves as a good introduction to our study here as well. It highlights for us that this is a study that takes a lot of homework. This is a study where we've got to show some caution. Uh, this is a study where if you're sloppy about it, you can get confused. And uh, Luke makes that very clear as well. All right? Three observations with respect to this. And you will notice uh, the outline here as a one, two, and three. 
Uh, you may even spot some similarities to your Through the Bible notebooks for those of you that are really correlating these notes to those notes. Luke acknowledges numerous other gospel records of the life of Christ. Verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished. Many. Well, how many do you need to make it many? How many is many? You know, do you have many children? Well, depends on how many you have and whether you consider that to be many or not. You may not consider it to be many, but somebody else may consider it to be many. <laughs> For example, understanding uh, to, to begin with that many is kind of a, a relative term and kind of a, a term that depends on your understanding. Nevertheless, however you take it, it has to be more than just simply two or three. You know, two or three are not many. Two or three are a few. Two or three are a couple, see, in any language. This has that so captivated not only the Jewish people, but Gentile nations as well, at this period of time. And it's remarkable. And we'll talk about it here shortly. Some of these myths, and I might uh, spark an interest in, in some of you to, to read some of these things. I, you know, I don't recommend them. They're, they're somewhat fascinating, and we'll talk about it here shortly. But Luke acknowledges that there was, there was a lot of information out there. There's a lot of false information out there. And Theophilus, we'll talk about him, who, who he might have been. Um, Theophilus wanted it straight. He wanted to know, well, what's, what's true and what's not true? Because when it comes right down to it, if you are a Gentile or a Jew or anyone that's interested in eternal life and curious and not going to hell when you die, you want to know what the real truth is about this carpenter from Galilee and whether or not he was who he claimed to be and, and whether these reports can be trustworthy whether these reports are reliable. And if, uh, if there's a lot of falsehoods out there, a lot of legends being grown, a lot of things, you want to find out, well, why? Why are those being promoted? Why are those stories being uh, exalted as opposed to the truthful stories? And uh, get down to the bottom of it, because really it does center in the truth of the gospel, the truth of eternal life. So naturally that's something Theophilus would be concerned about, something we'd all be concerned about, are the scriptures reliable? And... Uh, Obviously, we can say that they are, and we'll, we'll give you the reasons why here as the process of this unfolds. Subpoint so A, the legitimate Gospels would have included Matthew and Mark by this point of time. By the time Luke sat down and put pen to paper, Matthew and Mark have already been written. I believe in that order. Some would dispute that. Some say Mark had to have come first, but uh, that's really been discredited here in recent years by scholarship that actually believes God wrote the Bible. The people that really promote the fact that Mark wrote first are those that are denying that God wrote the Bible to begin with, and they've got other problems and issues they have to deal with. The legitimate Gospels would have included Matthew and Mark by this point of time. Following Luke, only the Gospel of John would be recognized by believers worldwide as being divinely inspired Scripture. As being divinely inspired Scripture. This is a very important point, and I'm going to take the time and sip some coffee here and let you get it written down word for word. The legitimate Gospels would have included Matthew and Mark by this point of time. Following Luke, only the Gospel of John would be recognized by believers worldwide as being divinely inspired Scripture. These four Gospel accounts, and only these four Gospel accounts, enjoyed <coughs> universal acceptance and recognition as being inspired scripture of the Word of God. 
Following Luke, only the Gospel of John would be recognized by believers worldwide as being divinely inspired scripture. Divinely inspired scripture. Only 66 books in the history of the world qualify as divinely inspired scripture. Books that God himself authored through human agency. And, of course, he used many human authors, over 40 human authors, to, to write the 66 books of the Bible. But only these 66 books. Now, there's countless others, scads and scads of others, what are called Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books, Old Testament, New Testament, etc. I'm going to spotlight a few of those here this morning. Most of which never made any claim to be Scripture. And the few that did make a claim to be Scripture, were recognized immediately for not being Scripture. And that's very important. Now, what, um, and this is just a short side trip, but it will profit you in future studies down the road, what determines canonicity? What determines whether a book belongs in the Bible or not? The issue is, did God write it? (laughs) All right. And... When we, when we talk about all of the human tests of canonicity and all of the ways that man comes along and determines, you know, well, I'm a man, you know, Pastor Bob Bolander, and I look at Luke and I say, okay, that's a legitimate gospel, and I look at the gospel of Nicodemus and I say, no, that's not a legitimate gospel. Well, who am I to say? Because I'm just a human being, and how do I really know? I might have some clues. I might have some earthly... Um, earthly things, the tools that I can employ, and, and things where I can say, okay, this is obviously not inspired. But ultimately speaking, on an absolute basis, um, living 2,000 years after when these things are written, I don't know. I don't know. But God does. Because God either wrote it or didn't write it. <laughs> and at the time that the New Testament was being compiled, God's own representatives were still on this earth, that being the Apostles the representatives of Jesus Christ's personal authority here on this earth. And so canonicity in the sense of the New Testament epistles was thoroughly grounded under the authority of the apostles. That if a false writing was out there, the apostles were very quick to identify it for what it was and said, no, this is not from God. A lot of these are going to come up, not only in Corinthians, but some of the other Pauline epistles, when counterfeit letters would arrive and Paul would have to write immediately correct it and say, no, that's not from God. They'd say, test the Spirit, see if these things are so. So, we have four Gospels. They have been recognized by the Apostles, by the early church, by believers around the world as being the legitimate Gospels. We have no problem with that. If you want an additional study on canonicity, it's a part of any bibliology course, it's a part of any systematic theology. We've got Schaefer Systematic Theology over here in the church library, and the volume on bibliology would include the uh, issues of both Old Testament and New Testament canonicity, how we determine which books belong in the Bible and which do not. So point B now. Many apocryphal Gospels were also being written. Many apocryphal Gospels were also being written. All right? And uh, they're called apocryphal in the sense that they were uh, hidden, that they, you know... We're not exposing the revelation of God's Word. All right. 
And I just gave a sampling of them there. Many apocryphal Gospels were also being written. The Gospel of Thomas, purportedly to be the uh, Gospel record of the Apostle Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, who stuck his fingers in the side of the resurrected Savior and all the issues there. Fascinating story. And you would expect that somebody like Thomas, who doubted and then believed and who actually you know, was invited to stick his fingers in, you know, a guy like that could probably write a pretty good story. Problem is that God did not direct for Thomas to write a gospel. He directed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write gospels. Didn't direct Thomas to write a gospel. I don't uh, meant to bring a dictionary up here uh, to uh, read some of these entries and talk about um, some of these. Many of these are not they're they're second, third, fourth century um, products. And they can't possibly be the work of the person that they claim, unless they lived centuries. And we know they didn't. We know that John was the last living apostle, and he died in, in either 96 or 100 AD, probably 100 AD, according to the traditions. Uh, the Gospel of Peter. Peter did not write a gospel. If you, if you care to accept it, Mark is really Peter's gospel, because uh, Mark learned from Peter, Mark traveled with Peter, Mark studied under Peter, and in all likelihood, Mark... Uh, developed everything in his gospel and his information there from what he learned from Peter. Uh, it's, it's a fun study if you ever want to do it. Warren Dowd is teaching Acts chapter 2 tonight, uh, these Sunday nights here recently. You can go and you can look at Peter's sermons in the book of Acts. And you can outline Peter's sermons in the book of Acts. And take the outline of Peter's sermon and then go outline the gospel of Mark. And you find they match you find there's quite a consistency between the two, and that's why, and that's been recognized for centuries, why most uh, people feel that, that Mark learned his material from, uh, from Peter. But Mark wasn't a, a disciple. Mark wasn't on the scene. Mark wasn't in the upper room. Mark wasn't, you know, there with Peter, James, John. You know, you run down your 12 apostles, there's no Mark in there anywhere. You know, Mark was a young guy and uh, was not on the scene during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, unless you think he makes that cameo appearance there in the, in the gospel. Uh, there are other papyrus fragments of unknown Gospels that have been collected. There are also some Jewish Christian Gospels, uh, an assortment of those. Uh, there's a Gospel of the Egyptians. There's the secret Gospel of Mark. Can't tell you about it, sorry. It's a secret. Um, <laughs> there are the birth and infancy Gospels. Quite a few of those. You know, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the baby in the manger, you see the boy at age 12 in the temple, and then you don't see him again until he's 30. And don't you get curious? You know, what did he do as a kid? What did he do as a teenager? Do you ever get curious about that? Well, maybe not. <laughs> but some people did, because they wrote all these fascinating birth and infancy narrative gospels. And some of them, the, the, the boy Jesus is really quite a prankster, and, you know, using his divine powers to do things with his school friends. and Anyway, they're not biblical. Don't worry about them. The Gospel of Nicodemus. And then an assortment of other post-resurrection revelations. Not to be surprising. And some of these may actually be very legitimate records. Just because they're apocryphal and just because they're not biblical, do not think that they are automatically uh, inaccurate or fraudulent. For instance, with the post-resurrection revelations, how many people did Jesus Christ appear to after his resurrection? 
He appeared to the, to the certain women. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to all the apostles. He appeared to James. He appeared to, uh, last of all, one untimely born. He appeared to the apostle Paul. But it also says that he appeared to more than 500 at one time. That's quite a few. And who's to say that some of them didn't jot down the record of that, didn't jot down their thoughts or their reactions and the things there. Some of these post-resurrection revelations may actually reflect an accurate event so far as a historical document or a diary would be concerned. But it's not biblical. We want to keep that in mind. Uh, we, we take a similar approach when we read uh, Josephus or you read First uh, Maccabees or something. You can, you can accept it for the historical accuracy of its record and still understand that it's not biblical. God didn't write it. It's not divinely inspired and it is subject to error and all the things that any non-biblical material would be subject to. Point C, there are other apocryphal works that, do not, that uh, contain the term gospel in their title but they don't contain material pertinent to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so they're rather mislabeled. There are other apocryphal works that contain the word gospel in their title. The Gospel of Barnabas, for example. The Gospel of... Uh, um, oh, a couple other ones. that um, Thaddeus, I think. There was a gospel there. But they... they, they really went far and wide and dealt with the people, the characters that they were titled for and did not really pertain to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what a gospel is about. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The first four books of our New Testament are gospels, records of his life and ministry. Point D... There's other early, uh, there are other early Christian traditions about the life and teaching of Jesus contained in other forms of Christian literature that do not contain the term gospel in their title. Just as there are some that are mislabeled gospel that really aren't, there are also some other Christian writings in the early centuries of the church that don't have the word gospel in their title. But they do preserve traditions, legends, stories, related to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And as I said, some of these may be factual. They may be accurate. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't have the absolute way to have certainty with respect to it because it's not inspired scripture. We can relate it to other historical records, other accounts, and come up with a reasonable uh, acceptance or rejection of any particular event, but we don't know with absolute divine certainty because it's not Scripture. Now, let me give you an example of this. And I can find it for you in... I like to find things that are easy. I can find it for you in Acts 20. And... thought it was Acts 20. Mm 
Acts 20.35. Would have been easier if I had a red letter edition Bible up here. <laughs> if you've got a red letter edition, you've got red letters on that verse, don't you? Alright. Paul, in, in speaking to the elders of the Ephesus church, or the Ephesus area churches, says, um, In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay? If you want to spend some time this afternoon, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, find our four inspired accounts of the Gospels, and find where Jesus said, It is more blessed to give than to receive but I'll save you some time. Because <laughs> you can spend all day, all night, all week reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over again. You're not going to find that quote in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet it is a quote that has been preserved in other sources, a quote that has been preserved in the living memory of those who heard it spoken. Remember when Paul is traveling, there are still many alive that heard Jesus Christ teach. Many of those 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection are still alive. And so what we have here is a record of, of a quotation of Christ that is accurate. We know it's accurate because the Holy Spirit allowed it to be written by Paul and preserved for us in the, in the book of Acts. It's in inspired scripture because the Holy Spirit put it into the book of Acts. But where did Paul get it from? didn't get it from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He got it from another uninspired, non-biblical Secular, you might say, printed source. So, important things to keep in mind. Alright, point two. Luke recognizes that many of these compiled accounts are inaccurate. And he strives to compile his own historical record based upon interviews with the eyewitnesses to the events. Luke recognizes that many of these compiled accounts are inaccurate and strives to compile his own historical record based upon interviews with the eyewitnesses to the events. Somebody of Theophilus' importance would expect that, would require that. And any fairness to to the issue itself would expect that, would require that. Luke recognizes that many of these compiled accounts are inaccurate. You know, stories have a way of growing as they're told over and over and over again. Such is the case. You might imagine how the feeding of the 5,000 became 10,000, 50,000, what have you. (laughs) And the number of people that claimed to have been there certainly exceeded probably 20,000. Oh yeah, I was there. Oh yeah, I was there. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the the 150 people that file uh, injury claims after a a bus accident or something. Never mind the fact that, you know, the bus only seats 66. And (laughs) you know that most of those people were nowhere near the bus, but they just showed up in order to uh, file an injury claim. That's just human nature. It's deceptive. It exaggerates. And Luke recognizes that because these accounts aren't coming from inspired scripture, they're not motivated by the Holy Spirit, they're not empowered to be inerrant, they, uh, they're subject to error, willful or even unintentional. 
They're subject to error. Luke wants to be accurate. Now, Luke was not an eyewitness. Luke wasn't one of the apostles. Luke wasn't on the scene. Luke's a Gentile, and so far, so far as we know, uh, Luke didn't enter into the, into the picture until he joined Paul's second missionary journey. And so he had to take the time to learn from Paul, who also was not an eyewitness. He had to learn from other eyewitnesses. Now, let's look at some of these verses here. I'm just going to bring them to your attention. These, uh, these aren't really verses that preach very well, but <laughs> they're not preaching verses, but they are good study verses. They're good homework verses to put them all together and you, 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 you get little glimpses here and there. All right? But back to Luke 1 now. Many have undertaken to compile an accurate an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word. All right? He's going to use eyewitness accounts to compile the most accurate record possible. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. See, he spent time to do research. Now, Luke was a doctor by profession, but he was a historian in this instance and is credited as being one of the finest historians of the ancient world. If you want to talk about Herodotus, you want to talk about uh, uh, Thucydides, you want to talk about some of the other uh, Greek uh, historians of the ancient world, their methodology, uh, in many cases, cannot compare to Luke's. Herodotus, in most cases, just simply wrote down what he was told and didn't bother checking it out. <laughs> Much of our ancient Egyptian history is basically what Herodotus heard from one particular Egyptian historian and just went with that. And it's, uh, it's caused Egyptologists now in modern times a tremendous amount of, of uh, problem in actually going back to original sources and trying to, trying to chart things out. So he does his own history. Now, back to the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, by the way. Um, notice, obviously, he's addressing this to most excellent Theophilus. He spotted that in Luke 1.3. In Acts 1.1, 1, 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he introduces the second book. So we realize that the book of Acts is really Luke part 2. Same author, writing to Theophilus in both cases. The first account was an account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now this is a, a record of the apostles and what they did after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the book of Acts. So you have Luke and you have Acts. Both written by, by Luke. The only Gentile to write in the New Testament. And who wrote more than any other author. Even though he only wrote two books, he wrote more than Paul. If you just count the verses, count the words, Luke and Acts being very long, and uh, he, the, the actual material of Luke is, is more than Paul wrote, even though Paul's got 13 books. Now, recognizing that Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts, we can spot in uh, chapter 17 the famous we transition, and I want you to be able to spot this for yourself. I'm sorry, it's chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Mm-hmm. And for 15 and a half chapters now, everything has been written in the third person. They did this, they did that. Alright? They went here, they went there. You know, verse 4, they were passing through the cities. Uh, verse 6, they passed through these regions. Verse 7, they came to Mysia. 
they came down to Troas in verse 8. Then all of a sudden, in verse 10, when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the, the first person shift that occurs in the book of Acts. Very dramatic, very instantaneous, and it happens at Troas. And this is where Luke enters the picture. This is where the author himself steps into the story, becomes a traveling companion of Paul's, and the language switches from the third person to the first person. And it continues. We have first person accounts throughout the rest of uh, chapter 16, and until we come to um, Philippi. And then uh, we, you notice in verse 16, we're going to the place of prayer, and etc. And then uh, the crowd rose up against them, and they're thrown into prison, and then released, and they depart in chapter 17 uh, to leave uh, Philippi. And in chapter 17, verse 1, when they're leaving Philippi, it says, now when they traveled through Amphipolis. Okay, the we disappeared again. And it goes back to they. Alright, it goes back to they. In any event, this is, uh, these are the clues of the things that we pick up of when Luke was traveling with Paul, when Luke departed. And it becomes obvious that Luke, and I believe his brother Titus, joined Paul at Troas, crossed into Europe with him, stayed there in Philippi, and when Paul and Silas had to leave town after the jail incident, they left Luke behind to, uh, to uh, minister to the, the new church there and to teach the new believers there in Philippi. All right, continuing your survey on into the uh, rest of the book of Acts, um, the we uh, returns, if I can spot it here, In Acts 20, yeah, we're, we're back today again for most of uh, 17, 18, 19. Um, but in uh, Acts 20 and verse 13, But we, going ahead of the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. And when he met us, all right, now we've got the, the we thing is going again. First person is going again. Luke has joined him again. And uh, the events of, uh, you've, got, you've got we prior to that too. You've got we in verse 6. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Okay. And so this, I guess that's the first we I'm spotting there in 20 in verse 6, although there's an us in verse 5. Natural, since the we disappeared in Philippi, the we is going to reappear back again in Philippi. And Luke joins the group again. Anyway, um, he goes to Ephesus, he goes to Jerusalem, he is um, arrested, he is put on trial. And I just want to spot one more thing for you here before we move on. Um, how, many, how many trials does Paul face? Any ideas? All right. And how much time does it take for him to face these trials? Any ideas? Okay. 
He is going to remain. He's swept away out of Jerusalem, and he's taken to Caesarea, which was the Roman headquarters, the Roman capital of the region. And he stands trial before Festus. He, he stands trial before Felix. All right. He then has another hearing before King Agrippa. And in reality, the time that he spends, before he finally makes his appeal to Rome and gets sent off to Rome, uh, he spends two years in prison in, uh, in Caesarea. Spends two years in prison in between all of his trials. Okay? And why I'm taking the time to show all this to you, why I'm taking the time to show you where the wees appear and the wees disappear and, and so forth, because it gives us the idea of what Luke's doing. We need to understand that because Luke's the author. Well, what uh, he's traveling with Paul and all these trials are going on, and then Paul spends two years in, uh, in prison in Caesarea. Well, what's Luke going to do that whole time? Well, Paul's in jail. I'm sorry? Okay. Or he's going to undertake his great writing project and his research that he says he does in Luke 1.3 that he is going to travel uh, throughout uh, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. He's going to travel throughout the region. He's going to interview the eyewitnesses. He's going to interview the disciples that are still around, the apostles that are still around. He's going to interview uh, Mary, the mother of the humanity of Christ. Remember, Luke is the gospel that gives us the story of the angel appearing to the virgin. Matthew didn't give us that. Mark didn't give us that. Luke has the opportunity to interview Mary and get that whole story straight from her and record it for us, thankfully, in Luke chapter 2. So, I believe when you, when you do all this homework and you track the we's and the they's and you find what Luke is doing all throughout the book of Acts and you find the uh, time that, uh, that uh, Paul spends in prison there in Caesarea, I think it then becomes... Um, it then becomes natural to understand that this was the time when he did his research, when he did his writing, and when he composed the, uh, the Gospel of Luke. All right? So, point three. Luke's immediate recipient for this historical work is Most Excellent Theophilus. Most Excellent Theophilus. Luke 1, 3. His immediate recipient for this historical work is most excellent Theophilus. Now, naturally, we're all recipients of the letter because the Gospel of Luke is a Bible book and it's for all of us to learn from. But, strictly speaking, the Gospel of Luke was originally written as a historical record targeted to one man. Most excellent Theophilus. Crotiste Theophile in the text. Luke 1, 3. Theophilus occurs again in Acts 1.1, and that's how we compare the books so well. Not only do the titles of the books match up, but the vocabulary of the books match up. The writing style of the books matches up. Luke is probably the, the finest grammarian in the Greek language of the New Testament authors. Paul is uh, very legal in his mind, and he, I mean, not that he's got a flawed uh, Greek or anything, but he's, he's a lawyer, <laughs> And he writes with very long run-on sentences, and he loses track of where he is, and he takes some amazing side trips. Um, Luke's Greek is much more uh, direct, much more uh, uh, pure in a, in a classical Greek historical sense. 
And so the writing styles pair those two books. The vocabulary pairs those two books. Luke is a physician, and we find a lot of medical terms in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And, and there's really no disputing that Acts and Luke were written by the same author, and really until modern times, no one even doubted Luke as the author of these two books. It's just the modern critics that come along and try to dispute everything, Just I think just to be ornery, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but that's another story. Most Excellent Theophilus. It's an amazing title. Um, titles can be precise. Titles, titles tell you a lot. You know, if you address somebody as doctor, you assume they're a doctor. <laughs> you address somebody as reverend, you assume that they're a minister of some sort. You address somebody as the honorable, and uh, what are they? Well, they're a, a judge or a, a, a legislator or someone uh, in, in uh, either the judicial or legislative branch, the honorable. Um, titles, uh, you, you could address them by a rank, a military rank, and so forth. Most excellent is a title. The term is kratistos, point A, kratistos, K-R-A-T-I-S-T-O-S, kratistos, and it is the superlative of kratus, K-R-A-T-U-S. Kratus is an adjective that means strong or mighty. And the superlative means most strong, most mighty, mightiest, strongest. It's the superlative form. You know, we have the stative, the comparative, and the superlative form. I think that's how they are. Declarative, comparative, superlative. Something might be good, something might be better, something might be best. This is the superlative. This is the best, the most. It's the superlative form of kratus, meaning strong or mighty. As a vocative of address, as a title, most excellent is a, is a wonderful title. It uh, was given to Roman officials. It was the standard address for not only Roman officials, but high Roman officials. Ruling Roman officials, not just an underling. Not just uh, you know a government representative or government agent of some sort, but actually a ruling government official. It only occur occurs four times in the in the Bible. It occurs in the in uh, the introduction to Luke. It occurs in uh, three different places in Acts when Paul is on trial, and they're all used of Roman officials. In Acts twenty three twenty six twenty four three and twenty six twenty five. 2326, he wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings, and he calls him here, Kratistos, most excellent, to the governor, the Roman governor of the uh, province of Judea. Chapter 24 and verse 3, uh, after Paul had been summoned, uh, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, uh, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. You see, it's a title for the Roman official. And the last one is chapter 26, verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth.
Did I say Festus than Felix a short while ago? Did I get my governors out of order? Okay. Just checking. <laughs> All right. Felix then Festus. Keep the, keep the trial straight. We do not know who Theophilus was, but the title is most remarkable. Um, Theophilus was actually a very common name. Uh, Theos meaning God. Philos meaning love or friend. The friend of God, lover of God. It was a common Greek name. It was common among believers and unbelievers alike. Because you know believers liked being friends of God and unbelievers liked being friends of whatever false god they served. And so <laughs> you know, Theophilus was really not an uncommon name at that period of time. Point B, Theophilus, number 2321, simply means friend of God. Friend of God. By the way, when the Greek went over to the Latin, you have Theodoros, I think, and that's where Theodore, Dorothy, comes from. I could be wrong on that. It may actually come from the Greek as well, from something else besides love. It may come from uh, something else as well, a gift of God, perhaps, from Doros' gift. That's probably where it comes from. All right. So much for Luke's introduction. Let's look at the pre-incarnation work of Christ. Let's turn over to John 1. And all I can do is introduce this for you this morning. We'll have to save the rest of this for next week. I guess we have ten minutes remaining. We're not doing too bad. John chapter 1. As I said, Luke is just a prologue. Luke sets the table. Luke reminds us that we've got to do our homework. We've got to do careful study. There's false teaching out there. There's inaccurate records out there. We want to make sure that we have the straight story. We, have, we maintain an accurate study. And we look at these things appropriately. Now we get to the real beginning of the Life of Christ series, which is the beginning without beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning. Reading verses 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overpower it. This uh, section will take us down through verse 18, but I'll stop reading there for the moment. In the beginning, beginning, kind of like many, is a relative concept. Um, because you may have multiple beginnings. The uh, beginning of... Uh, of uh, uh, my pastoring here was in 1995. Um, November, December, i got to look up the exact Sunday when I think it was the vote was in November, but then Ralph came back for three more Sundays and then he departed and I think my first Sunday was December 20th, if I have the date right, 1995. Um, so that was the beginning of, of uh, my pastorate here at Austin Bible Church. But, I was ordained the year prior to that, November of 94. And so you might say, well, that was the beginning of my ordained ministry because 
Uh, I had a year between then and, and actually stepping in here, and I did other things. I went and spoke in other churches. I conducted my sister's wedding. I did other, you know, pastorly type things during that time since I had the, the certificate and whatever else. All right? Or you look back to May of, uh, or September of uh, uh, 1991 and say, well, that was the beginning of my teaching ministry because I taught uh, from 91 to 94 before I was even ordained. In fact, my ordination message was the 200th Bible class I ever taught. And so you go back to 2001 and say, well, that was the beginning of my teaching ministry. So when people ask, well, you know, how long have you been pastoring? I say, well, kind of hard to say. <laughs> you know, uh, January 2000 was the beginning of my full time. And I hate that term. Um, devoted ministry because from 95 to 99 I was working in the jail 40 hours a week for the Travis County Sheriff's Department and I was working both law enforcement by night working graveyard shift and pastoring during the day but starting with January 2000 with Y2K the jail became a thing of the past and and, uh, that began my uh, I don't want to call it full time because I was pastoring full time but it began the, the uh, undivided ministry, you might call it. So there's lots of different beginnings, see. Beginning of my marital life in May of 91. The beginning of my uh, uh, parental life in July 92. You know, there's all kinds of different beginnings. So when you read things like in the beginning, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, You've got to put it in this context and say, well, okay, now which beginning is this? Is this the absolute beginning or is this a beginning? Likewise with John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Well, now which beginning is this? And we want to keep these things straight. And once upon a time, when we taught the Gospel of John, we uh, gave an entire doctrinal study on beginnings. And we found, I forget how many now, different beginnings Uh, in the scripture that we have to be concerned with. But this begins, the Gospel of John begins with an in the beginning that precedes the Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. We understand immediately from the context of Genesis 1 that what we have in view there is the restoration of the earth and the creation of man and the establishment of God's plan and program for the Adamic race. And so we have the beginning of God's uh, dealings with man and the creation of, of man in Genesis chapter 1. Were there things that preceded that? Yes. I've taught that many times. I hold to that to this day. There are some that are starting to, or that have abandoned the, the recreation events of Genesis 1, but I'm standing by it because the Bible stands by it. that this beginning of John 1.1 comes before the uh, beginning of Genesis 1.1. There's other things that precede the beginning of Genesis 1.1. You look at all the six days of creation, the seventh day he rested, and you look at the, six, the items that were created on the six days, and you don't find any angels in there. You don't find any angels in there. Well, when were they created? You've got to go elsewhere in the Scriptures. You've got to go to Psalms. You've got to go to Job. You've got to go to Isaiah. You've got to go elsewhere to Colossians in the New Testament. You've got to go elsewhere to find the, the whole picture. Angels aren't referenced in Genesis 1 because Genesis 1 is not dealing with angels. 
Genesis 1 is dealing with the creation of man. The beginning of the restoration of the earth after it was destroyed, after the angelic destruction, and the restoration of the earth for human habitation, the creation of Adam and Eve. Obviously, by the time you get to chapter 3, the serpent's a fallen creature. That had to have preceded the events of Genesis 1. So we have a beginning. We're going to spend some time on this. He, I see, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're going to break down all three of those phrases for you next week. This one was in the beginning with God. Now, it's not just simply repeating what verse 1 said, but it's highlighting something very important. We will tackle that for you next week as well. God did not create because He was lonely. If anybody ever told you that, they uh, either didn't know what they were talking about, or maybe they'd heard it from somebody else, and it's not the right story. God was not lonely. God was in perfect happiness, perfect contentment. If you, if you try to ascribe any kind of imperfection to God, then God isn't God anymore. He, he was lacking nothing. He didn't create because he had a lack, and he didn't create because he was lonely or any other thing. He was in perfect harmony with himself. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect harmony with one another. Perfect fellowship and intimacy with one another for all eternity. In eternity past. We're going to hopefully next week open our minds a bit to start thinking in terms of eternity past. It's a hard thing to do. It's hard enough thinking about eternity future. And thinking about forever that direction. It's even harder to think about forever back that direction. Because we want to have a, a beginning point for everything. The perfect fellowship and perfect love between the Father and the Son. And we're going to take you to Proverbs 8 and we're going to show you the, uh, the blessings of eternity past and how the Father loved the Son and how the Son loved the Father and how they worked these things out. But you'll notice in the beginning was the Word. Luke was uh, concerned about writing an accurate account concerning the Word and the ministry of the Word among us, these things that have come to pass. And so we're going to talk about the Word and the role of Jesus Christ because the life of Christ does not begin in the manger. I think we've made that clear. <laughs> the human body and the entrance of that human body into the world occurred in the manger. But the life of Christ... It, this isn't a study on the life of the humanity of Jesus Christ. This, is, this study is simply titled, The Life of Christ. And so as such, we have to go back to eternity past. Because this verse here talks about life. In Him was life. And ultimately speaking, to understand the life of Christ means we need to understand all the realm of creation to understand why mankind has a centerpiece in that. And the life, the life, was the light of men. Not angels. Not animals. Sorry, Peter. <laughs> not, uh, not trees. Alright. Men. And that's anthropoids, mankind as a class. It's not excluding women. It's, you know, mankind. The realm of humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So we will, that gives you a flavor. When you come back next Wednesday, come back prepared to think in eternal terms. Don't know how you're going to do that. <laughs> we'll just 
have silent prayer at the beginning of the hour and ask the Father to open our minds, make sure we got sin confessed, make sure we can handle it, because we got finite minds, and yet we're looking at infinite truth. The only way we can possibly take in such truth is for the Holy Spirit to guide us in the truth, as He faithfully does, day by day. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for Your promises. Thank You for this study. Thank You for bringing a nursery worker back, Father. Thank You for all the blessings You pour out upon us day by day. Thank You for the new uh, the church website and all the work that's going into uh, making the very best of, uh, of MP3 recordings. And just thank You for all the blessings that You supply in our lives on a daily basis. We give You the praise. We give You the thanksgiving and the glory. We look forward to being with You and consider that today may even be the day that the Lord Himself descends with a shout. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.